So here we are. We're in the middle of chapter 33. And we're getting to the idea of a certain kind of joy that is really all pervading. It's kind of joy that literally takes over your whole personality, not just your divine soul, but even your animal soul. It speaks to you as a person, to us as a person, to us as people, and allows us to suddenly come in touch with the deepest truth, the essence of everything. And when we get it, there's like a light that goes on, like something that floods us and fills us and fills all aspects of our life. And this is where we've come to. We started out saying, you know what? If you need that extra joy, think about the idea of Hashem's true unity, that there's nothing else besides Him. And then when we think about that and we realize that, yes, there are things that are there, but they don't exist. Nothing has an existence outside of Hashem because everything is subsumed, contained within Him. And when something small and insignificant is contained within something infinitely larger than itself, Is it there? It's there, but it has no existence. There's only one existence and that's the source. We talked about the lights, the ray of the sun within the globe of the sun. While it's within the globe of the sun, you're not gonna say there's the sun and its rays. There's nothing, there's just the sun. And coming to this deep idea of being in touch with Hashem's true unity is such a gift. It's more than if the king comes and decides to live with a simple and lowly person. It is greater than if somebody just has an immense fortune that falls to them. And we have this as an inheritance, that we are able to tap into the truth, to the essence of everything, and realize that there is nothing else besides Hashem. And for that alone, every single day we praise Hashem. We say, thank you, how goodly is our law, how pleasant is our fortune. We are able to tap into this truth, not so that we get it only intellectually, but to the point that it resonates deeply within us, that it registers that there's nothing else besides him. So we got up to the point last week where, okay, one second, here we go. We got up to the point last week, just finishing the thought that just as a person rejoices and is glad when an immense fortune falls into his possession by inheritance through no toil of his own. Similarly, and infinitely more so, ought to we rejoice over the inheritance which our forefathers bequeathed to us. This inheritance is the true unity of God, that even here below on earth, there is nothing else besides him. This is like a secret, a treasure that's passed down in the family. Since we're born, we have this immense fortune that we can tap in and nullify to this truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem. This is something that's been passed down from generation to generation, whispered into the ears of the babies by their parents. Right here below, filling this very earth is Hashem. Now, that alone is a reason to rejoice, but let's get to this thought. And this is his abode among the lowly beings of this physical world, when they are pervaded by the awareness of God's unity and nullify themselves before it. So not only do we feel this joy, 
because we can tap into the truth and let it really pervade our being so that we get it and understand it, that there's nothing else besides him. But something is accomplished with that. You know what's accomplished? This is Hashem's abode. The Midrash tells us that when God created the world, he desired to have a dwelling place in the lowest realms. When a Jew living in this world, a world that is full of concealment, shadow, ego, separateness, fragmentation, doesn't see the truth and comes to this deep inner awareness and identification that there's nothing else besides him, within themselves at that moment, they create an abode for Hashem himself. That's exactly what Hashem wanted. Hashem created this world with the intention of having an abode in a place where nobody naturally recognizes him. That's the way he created it. He created it that there's no natural recognition of him and that despite it all, we come to recognize him. When a creature living in this lowly world in a physical body comes to recognize him and feel his infinity and understand that there's nothing else besides him, at that moment, the abode has been created. We become the abode. Our awareness, our consciousness of his presence everywhere, that there's no space devoid of him, constitutes his abode. And that's going to be another amazing reason to be happy. So I was reading an article by Rabbi Tzvi Freeman on Chabad.org. It's actually his introduction to his book, Bringing Heaven Down to Earth. And he talks about his journey back to Judaism. He wasn't born into a observant or traditional family, I guess. And he was doing a lot of searching. And by the time he was 15, he was at the top of his class, the class president, high honors, and he decided he's dropping out of school. So his parents say, hey, you just got to understand that room and board is contingent upon you graduating school. And so he said, okay, he goes to college to take the early exams. And before you know it, he's out of school, high school, two years early. He considers himself free. His father calls him free to associate with the fringe members of our society. So he goes hitchhiking across the U.S., across Canada, across the United Kingdom, in Israel. He's meeting, meeting fellow searchers and he's hungry. he is hungry as ever. His soul is starving. He finds Eastern meditation. He becomes a Tai Chi and yoga teacher. He becomes a strict vegetarian and he's starving. Nothing is working for him. He's practicing deep meditation and his soul is bare. His soul cannot feel what it's craving. Now he's thinking, okay, he's just going to lock himself up in a Zen monastery for two years. And on his travels, he comes across a traveling chassid. And the chassid starts speaking to him these deep ideas from Jewish mysticism. And even though he doesn't understand most of what the chassid is saying, suddenly he feels like he's a fish in water. He knows that there's something about it that's speaking to his essence. He feels that there's thousands of years of wisdom and beauty behind the words of this chassid. And the chassid tells him, do you know what your purpose is? Your purpose is to see the divine in everything. And that talks to him. Suddenly, somebody is speaking to his heart. You know, a person can go searching and they're in doing all this mysticism and spirituality and meditation. But what hurts is when you don't know why you're here. And suddenly he tells him in just a few short words why you're here. 
And because it's true, it suddenly speaks to him. Oh my gosh, that's true. I need to see godliness in everything. And so he asks him, okay, I have a lot of questions. Where do I find out more? Who do I ask? And he tells him, there's somebody called the Labavitcher Rebbe. And now he's scared. He doesn't want to meet the Rebbe. He's afraid that if he goes to some, you know, master, he's just going to be swallowed alive. He's going to become a robot. He's going to lose his sense of independence. But eventually he does come to the Rebbe. And what strikes him so much about the Rebbe is his simplicity. He doesn't dress any different than his chassidim. He has a bare bones office. He has a simple home. There's nothing extravagant on the outside. But what makes him stand out is that he's a master of simplicity, is that he allows the divine essence to shine through him. That's it. Now, yes, the Rebbe is the Rebbe. He comes once, once in history. But each of us, really, that's what we're aiming for, exactly that. To become a master of simplicity, to allow nothing but the divine essence to shine through us. Do we each have an incredibly lofty soul? Well, each soul is divine, that's for sure. But each soul has its unique capacity. And each of us, in our own way, can allow that to happen. And when we allow that to happen, when we nullify to this truth that there's nothing else besides him, at that moment, we have created an abode for Hashem down here. There's a story of the Mittal Rebbe. This is the Alter Rebbe's son, the author of the Tanya's son and his successor. And there was a relative of his, an old woman that was confined to bed sick for about two years. And every time she felt like, oh my gosh, it's kind of over, they would write a note to the Rebbe to pray for her. And he would pray for her and she would get better, not completely better, enough better to keep her life going. And then finally, one of the people involved in this story had the audacity to ask the Rebbe. He said, I don't understand. You know, here, she's very old. She's very sick. She's in her bed. And then she feels like she's leaving. And then we write a note and you pray for her. And then she stays a little longer. Really, what's the point of all of that? I mean, this is a pretty bold question. But the Rebbe looks at him. And the Rebbe says, but she has emuna. She has faith. And with her faith, she will live. And Hasidim tell this story to illustrate this concept in chapter 33 in Tanya, that this is the purpose of man, to have this faith, to become aware of the truth that there's nothing else besides for him. So yes, she's in bed and yes, she's elderly, but you know, every single day that she's here, she fulfills the purpose of creation, not just of her own creation. She's fulfilling the purpose of the creation of all the worlds just by her having faith in Hashem's unity. We can never underestimate that. We can't even imagine the value of a person down here in this physical world becoming cognizant and aware and allowing it to totally pervade the consciousness that there's nothing else besides Hashem. And now the altar is going to explain that this joy that we feel when we become so aware of Hashem's all-pervading presence, that there's nothing else besides Him, the joy that then resonates within us is so great that it allows us to keep all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. This is 
This is the meaning of what our rabbis of blessed memory said. 613 mitzvot were given to Israel, came Chabakok, and based them all on a single one, faith. As it is written, a tzaddik lives by his faith. So this is pretty interesting. There's a passage in the Talmud where it speaks about different prophets coming along and narrowing down the commandments to a lower number, which seems pretty curious. So listen to this. King David comes and establishes the entire Torah on 11 mitzvot. These include such activities as speaking honestly, honoring those who fear God, neither taking bribes nor interest on loans. The prophet Yeshayahu comes along. He establishes the entire Torah on six mitzvot. These include speaking honestly, behaving in an upright manner, avoiding evil in all its forms. The prophet Micha comes along. He establishes the entire Torah on three mitzvot. They are doing justice, having mercy, and walking modestly before God. The prophet Yeshayahu comes again, and he establishes it now on two. And he said, these are justice and righteousness. Now, the prophets Amos and Habakkuk come along. They each give a single mitzvah. Amos requires that we seek God. And Habakkuk says, a tzaddik will live by his faith. He requires faith. Now, what's going on over here? Since when do prophets come along and reduce the Torah? It is a very clear injunction of the Torah that you are not allowed to add and you are not allowed to detract. If a prophet come along and says, there's no longer 613 mitzvahs, now there's only 11, there's still 613 mitzvahs, and he is definitely not a prophet. So what is going on when these prophets come along and they are as if reestablishing the Torah on a smaller amount of mitzvot? So the Ein Yaakov brings commentary to explain that the leaders of the generation each time were realizing that if they narrow the entire system down to, let's say, six or three mitzvot, they're not reducing the mitzvot. What they're doing is they're saying that if you keep these three, if you keep these two, if you keep these six, whatever the number was in that generation, you're going to tame your evil inclination and it's become easy for you to keep all the mitzvot. That's the terminology here. It says, Ve'amidan, established them. Didn't say he took away mitzvot. He took all 613 mitzvot. He established them on a smaller number. You keep these few, it will be easy for you to keep everything. Reminds me of a story I used to hear as a kid. There was a young man who had a problem with stealing. It just came so easy to him. It came naturally to him. He had quick hands. He had keen eyes and he was constantly stealing and he wanted to stop this terrible habit and so he came to a big rabbi and he said look he, he needs to stop stealing but he doesn't know how and if the rabbi is going to tell him to stop stealing he doesn't think he'll be able to listen and the rabbi said okay let's not deal with the stealing problem now i'm just going to ask you to assure me of one thing that from now on you're always going to say the truth Stealing we'll deal with later, but just assure me that from now on, you're always going to say the truth. So the little boy or the young man gives the rabbi his word that from now on, he's always going to say the truth. Okay. He's walking and there he sees a find. Right over there, there's like a chest open with some gold coming out. The door of the house is open. He goes inside, fills up his sack. Nobody sees him quick as ever, as usual. And he's on his way. Suddenly he's like, oh my gosh. What if somebody asks me if I saw who was there? What if somebody asks me if it was me? I'm going to have to say the truth. And so he comes back and he puts all the merchandise right back where he got it from. What happened here? The rabbi understood 
that if this boy refrains from lying, it will help him to refrain from stealing. Sometimes you can see that there's like a core essence principle that if you keep that, everything else will flow easy from there. So that's why the prophets came along and they said, be careful with these 11, be careful with these six. And if you realize the things that they were pointing out were good character traits, they are not even considered mitzvahs per se. A lot of them are good character traits. Have these good character traits, everything else will then flow easy for you. I mean, think about it. When Eliezer, the servant of our forefather, Abraham, was looking for a wife for Isaac, for Yitzchak, he was specifically looking for one character trait, kindness. He said, the woman, the young woman who will come and she will offer water, not just to me, but also to my camels. I will know that she was chosen to be the wife for Yitzchak, for Isaac. He realized that this kindness speaks of other special traits. It's an all-inclusive trait that speaks of other traits. So here we understand that Chavachah comes along and says, if you keep this one mitzvah, it will make it easier for you to keep all the 613 mitzvot. Now we have to read these words. It says, Tzadik be'amunasa yechia. A tzadik lives by his faith. That means that if you have faith, you can be a tzadik. Just by having faith. And what does it mean, faith? Faith means belief in Hashem's unity. Understanding that there is nothing else besides Him. Kilaymar, meaning. Ki'ilu eina rak mitzvah achas. Hi ha'amuna levada. Ki al yedei ha'amuna levada. Yavai lakiyum kol hataryag mitzvahs. It is as if they, all the mitzvot, consisted of this one mitzvah. Of faith alone, for through faith alone, one will come to fulfill all 613 mitzvot. Okay, so now, do you have a question about that? Because <laughs> I see a lot of people who have faith and they don't keep 613 mitzvot. So it's not just faith in the abstract sense. The faith that we're speaking about here is, first of all, understanding that not only is there just one God, the only God that there is, is Hashem. Faith in God's unity means that there's no other existence besides for that. And everything else is totally nullified to Hashem. And then step two is allowing this idea to resonate so deeply within our consciousness that we actually feel joy from that. The sign that it hit home is when it makes us happy. Like we said last time, you, know, you say, hello, you won the $500 million lottery. And you say, okay, I'm going to go make dinner now. Wait one second. You didn't understand what I just said. If you got what I said, you wouldn't just say, okay, bye, I'm going to make dinner. You were going to be filled with joy. When we understand that there's really nothing else besides Hashem and everything is contained within him and totally subsumed to that, when that becomes our reality so that we nullify to that, that brings us profound joy. And when we have this level of profound joy from faith in Hashem's unity, we can keep all 613 That is, when his heart will rejoice and be glad with his faith in God's unity, in perfect joy, 
That's the key word here. He will be glad in perfect joy as though he were obligated by just this one mitzvah and it alone were the purpose for which he and all the worlds were created. Surely, if there were just one mitzvah for him to do, he would fulfill it with utmost joy. So again, this is an idea we spoke about last class. If you knew that there was just one mitzvah that you had to do to connect heaven and earth, to make it all worthwhile, to fulfill the reason why Hashem created everything, you would do that mitzvah with your fullest heart, with the greatest joy. You'd be dancing when you did that. Guess what? There is one mitzvah like that. It's this mitzvah. It's coming to realize that there's nothing else besides Hashem. When we do that, when we nullify to this truth, when we allow this truth to shine through us so that we become an abode to him, that's it. We fulfilled our own reason for being created. We fulfilled the reason why all the worlds were created. Everything was created for this. And for that, we would have so much joy just to fulfill this one mitzvah. Now, when a person is filled with this incredible joy, Let him thus rejoice in the mitzvah of faith and by the power and vitality of his soul generated from this great joy, his soul will far, his soul will soar far above all obstacles, hindering his fulfillment of all the 613 mitzvot. Both the obstacles from within, from one's animal soul, and from without, arising from one's environment. So when a person comes to this joy, that there's nothing else besides Hashem, to the point that he's literally pervaded by it, he's dancing from it, nothing's going to stop him from serving Hashem. Because why does anything get in our way at all from serving Hashem? Because a person thinks like this. They could be a believer. They say there's a God. There's a God. But there's other things too, and those things have significance. When a person says, nothing has significance besides for Hashem, then nothing gets in his way. There's no such thing as an obstacle. If it's an obstacle to serving Hashem, it is totally insignificant. It doesn't exist. All that exists there is, is Hashem. Anything that's in, that's in the way that prevents serving Hashem is just non-existent. Now, there's two ways of getting it. There's a way that a person gets it, but they get it intellectually. If they get it only intellectually, but not emotionally, they will still be daunted by obstacles. They get it. A person understands, really, there's nothing else besides Hashem. But their heart is not surging with joy. Then obstacles are still daunting. However, when a person gets it and it resonates emotionally, then obstacles have no significance. Nothing stands in the way of this person serving Hashem. There's the story of the previous Rebbe where he was subject to immense torture. And uh, one time they were taking him to the interrogating room after many times of taking him to the interrogating room. And he was not intimidated like all the other cutthroats and bullies that were intimidated in the interrogating room. And finally, one of the interrogators was so exasperated and he pulled out a revolver and he said, This toy has a way of making people talk. And he said, that toy is persuasive for people who have many gods and one world. But I have only one God and two worlds, and that toy will not persuade me. When a person lives with this idea that there's really nothing else besides Hashem, 
then whatever it is, I mean, look at the previous Rebbe, a revolver. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's not significant. It doesn't exist because there's nothing else besides Hashem. Being thus imbued with the awareness of Hashem's true unity, a person will be able to overcome any obstacle hindering him from carrying out the mitzvot. For how can anything stand in the path of God's will, the mitzvot, when there is nothing in the world apart from God? So again, this can be understood intellectually, but once it's understood emotionally, it totally changes a person. And this is what the author is going to explain right now. Thus, the expression Yechia will live in the verse Atzadik will live by his faith is meant of the, in the sense of will be revived as though resurrected from the dead. So his soul will be revived by this great joy. So what does this mean that a tzaddik will live by his faith? It's not just live. He will be revived. He will be as if given a whole new life energy from this faith. How Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it, it's not just this faith inspires a person's life. This faith completely recreates a person's life. It's like somebody woke up from the dead. It gives him a whole new life energy. In fact, there are great Hasidim that say that until they came to understand this, until they came to this path of Hasidus, their life before that wasn't life. Until they came to this realization of the divine, they didn't feel like they had life. Compared to the life that they have now, that wasn't life. And there's a story of a Hasid of the Alter Rebbe that his name was Rabbi Yukusil Lepler. And the Alter Rebbe wanted to bless him. So first he offered him wealth. He said, I want to bless you with wealth. And he didn't want wealth. He said it would be a distraction. So then he said to him, I want to bless you with long life. And so he makes a condition with him. He says, but not peasant years, men that have eyes, but do not see, who have ears, but do not hear, who do not perceive godliness, nor do they hear godliness. And the Rebbe speaks about this story out of Farbringen, Yotes Kislev, 1965. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Someone's offering you a gift and you say, you know what? You want to give me $1,000? No, unless you give me $5,000, I will not take it. What is this? Bargaining for a gift? Take the gift and say thank you. But for him, it wouldn't be considered life if he was blind and deaf to godliness. He said, you want to bless me with a long life? Make sure that the life that you bless me with is life. Otherwise, he doesn't want to take it. He said, you want to bless me with longevity? Fine, but it can't be peasant ears. It can't be men who have eyes but don't see, ears who do not he, ears but do not hear, people who could not perceive godliness, because it's not life if you can't perceive godliness. And this is something that becomes so deeply entrenched within the person to understand that really there's nothing else besides for Hashem. And he is so, so close. There is nothing that exists between us. From Hashem's side, of course, nothing exists between us. From our side, our natural perception is as though we are separate, as though there is something apart, as though there is a distance. But there is no distance. We just have to pull the curtain off our eyes and see the fact that there's really nothing else besides Hashem. Hashem is so, so close. He is closer to us than our own heartbeat. He's closer to us than our essence of life. He is the very essence of the essence of life. There is no distance and no separation. And when we feel that, 
that infuses our bones with joy and it is literally like waking up from the dead, becoming an entirely new person. And a person in this mode soars far above any obstacle. Nothing gets in his way because there is nothing. There is nothing else besides Hashem. Now, this is really a foundation in Chabad philosophy. You have to understand that some of the Alter Rebbe's colleagues, the author of the Tanya's colleagues, took issue with the fact that he made faith intellectually available. They said, faith is something simple that's natural to the Jew. Don't intellectualize it. They felt like it would spoil it. And he wrote back a letter. It's printed in his book of letters. And he wrote back saying, it must have slipped your mind that which our sages said. Ganva apomachtarta rachmanakarya. That a thief at the mouth of his tunnel calls out to God. He's about to break into a home to steal and even kill if necessary. We read the passage in the Talmud to understand that this person is dangerous to life as well. So he's ready to steal and even to kill, God forbid. And yet he believes that everything comes from Hashem and he's praying to Hashem to make him successful. Here's a person with faith, but he doesn't act in congruence with his faith. And in fact, the, the Alter Rebbe's colleagues brought this statement from the Talmud to prove that it's just faith and that's fine enough. That tzaddik tzaddik will live by his faith and this is what everything is based on. But he took this same sentence and said, no, no, it's not just you have to have faith. You have to live with this faith. A tzaddik will live with his faith. It's not just enough to have faith. Everybody has faith until they have to make money. It means that they have faith to the point that it becomes their life. V'tzadik be'amunasa yeche, atzadik will live with his faith. He will fuse with his faith. It will make him alive. It will bring him back from the dead. It will make him who he is as a person. And this is so important. It's not just enough to have faith in the abstract. We have to concretize it. We have to bring it home. We have to let it pervade our personality. So until now, we talked about the tremendous joy that we have from feeling the closeness of Hashem. When we understand that there's nothing else besides Hashem, this constitutes actual closeness to Hashem, and this is a cause for tremendous joy. But now the author is going to tell us there's another reason to be tremendously happy from this faith. V'hi simcha kefula umichupelas, ki milvar simchas hanefesh, hamaskelas bekirvas Hashem, vidirasai ita imai, this is a double and redouble joy, apart from the soul's joy upon apprehending how near God is to him and how he dwells together with him. But now there's another kind of joy that's coming our way. He will also rejoice doubly in the joy and pleasure which his faith brings to God. Until now, we were rejoicing in Hashem's closeness to us. But now we are rejoicing that we're able to bring Hashem joy. For thereby, through one's faith in God's unity, the Sitra Achra is truly subdued and darkness is transformed to light. So the Zohar explains that there's two primary ways of bringing joy to Hashem. One is by subduing darkness, 
The dark side tries to lure us in, to pull us in, and we say no. <laughs> we resist. And the other way is by transforming darkness, taking something which is initially a dark situation and turning that into light. And both of these happen when we have true faith in Hashem and when we nullify to this faith. Because our natural condition is to see ourselves as an ego apart, as something separate, to think that there is a reality outside of Hashem. But when a person comes to realize that there's no other reality besides for Hashem, they resist the darkness, they subdue it. And when they allow that divine truth of Hashem's true unity to shine through them, they nullify to that and Hashem's unity becomes their reality. They become an abode to Hashem. What they did at that moment was transform darkness into light. And this brings Hashem tremendous pleasure. Is that crazy that we're able to bring Hashem pleasure? I mean, think about it. Did you ever see those pictures from outer space? The earth looking like how tiny? And how tiny are we on that earth? You, tinier than we can imagine. And a tiny creature like us, Hashem wants a relationship with us. And when we do this, when we become aware of his presence to the point that it pervades our consciousness, we make an abode for him and we make him happy. Making Hashem happy makes us happy. The fact that we can make the creator of the universe. We, we see a physical world and it's vaster than we can imagine. It looks infinite. This is just but one world in the chain of worlds that are spiritual. We don't even know the vastness of the universes. We don't even know the angels. We have no idea. And all of this was created so that we can come us little creatures on this planet Earth can come to this realization that there's nothing else besides him. And when we do that, we make Hashem happy. The fact that we can make the creator happy is, is crazy. It's indescribable. The joy is enormous. Now, the altar explains what the transformation here is. And we're going to describe the darkness of the klipa. Meaning, the darkness of the klipot, of this corporeal world, which obscure and conceal God's light. So what is the darkness that we're transforming? We're transforming the darkness of the klipot. The klipot is from the Sitra Achara. Sitra Achara, klipot, there are different terms to describe the idea. Sitra Achara means like this, the other side, that which is not holy. Klipot means shells, husks, that's which, that which covers up. This is the forces of impurity in the world. Why are they called darkness? Well, let's think what darkness is. Darkness is, there are things that are plainly visible, they're out there for you to see, but you can't see them. You can't see them because the darkness obscures it. They're there, you should be able to see it, but you can't see it because there's darkness. That's what klipa is. There's an obvious truth. The obvious truth is there's nothing else besides Hashem. And even though it's plain and obvious, we can't see it because the klipa envelops it, hides, envelops us hides the reality that there's nothing else besides Hashem. And this reality really exists until the time when Hashem will make this no more. There's, there's darkness that a person creates just from having sinned. God forbid, that's a particular darkness. A person, God forbid, sins, they transgress the will of Hashem. There's a particular darkness attached to that sin. But then there's a general condition of darkness. That's the condition of the world. Olam, world, comes from the word halem or ne'elam, hidden. World means hidden. The divine truth is hidden 
in the world. And that's a condition that stays until the end of days. Until the end of days. As it is written, he sets an end to the darkness. The biblical phrase, the end of days, is written, Since Yamin in Aramaic means days and Yamin in Hebrew means right, the phrase intimates that in the end of days, God will reveal his right hand, a reference to his attribute of revelation, when he will banish the spirit of impurity from the earth and God's glory, the godliness within every created being, will be revealed and all flesh together will behold it. That is to say, not only the mind, but even the very flesh of man will perceive godliness, as will be explained further in chapters 36 and 37. So the world has been created with this condition of darkness. We didn't choose it. Hashem chose it. But the Navi Zechariah tells us that there's going to come a time when I will make the spirit of contamination, of impurity, pass from the land. There will no longer be this spirit of impurity. And once there is no longer the spirit of impurity, then all flesh will see, literally see godliness, not just the mind, but even the flesh will see godliness. This banishment of the Sitra Ahura will take place only at the end of days during this messianic era. Until then, however, while the darkness of Klippa still reigns over the earth, one affords Hashem gratification by crushing the Sitra Ahura and transforming its darkness into light by means of his faith. And man's realization of this fact intensifies his own joy in his faith. So first of all, we were happy just for coming to the realization of closeness to Hashem. But now we're happy that our realization makes Hashem happy. When we realize Him, he, it makes Him happy. And the fact that we're able to make Hashem happy makes us happy. Rabbi Shtenzels gives the example of parents asking their children difficult questions. And when the child is able to answer that question, it brings the parents great joy. This world is like a maze, a riddle. And Hashem poses a series of difficult questions. And the most important question is, where am I? And we, when we are able to jump over the obstacles, the cognitive obstacles, the emotional obstacles, the spiritual obstacles that come to block the truth that there's nothing else besides Him. And we, when we can say, you are here we answer the question, and that makes Hashem so happy. And when we are able to make Him happy, we rejoice in that. Okay, now the altar is going to say, it's great enough as it is, but if you're living in the diaspora, and you're able to come to the realization, even outside of the land of Israel, this brings Hashem joy that is exceptionally tremendous. Ubefrat v'chutz la'aretz. This is especially so in the diaspora, where the atmosphere is unclean and is filled with klipot and the sitra achora. So the sages declared that the land outside of Israel is impure, and not just the land, but even the airspace. Now, this is for technical halachic reasons, as far as where a Kohen is allowed to go, and if somebody does leave the land of Israel because there are unmarked graves, they will have to be purified with the ashes of the red heifer in order to enter the, the holy temple. But there's something deep and mystical about that. 
And as the Megala Amukais, Megala Amukais is a famous Kabbalist, Rabbi Nasanata Shapiro, he writes that the sages decreed impurity outside of the land since the airspace outside of the land is the dwelling place of the Klipot. But in the land of Israel, there is no dominion to the Klipot. So yes, there's darkness even in the land of Israel as we see today, unfortunately. But the darkness that envelops people who live outside of the land of Israel is that much greater. I mean, my brother tells me that every time he goes to Israel, he sees tremendous hashgacha practice like he doesn't see anywhere else. He, he showed me a video. He's, he's in a taxi. He's texting a guy, a fellow American, in Jerusalem. And as he looks up from his phone, who is walking down the block in Jerusalem? The person that he's texting. And he's like, this is not unusual. It happens to me all the time in the land of Israel. The land of Israel has a special extra revelation of Hashem. But when we live in the diaspora, outside of the land of Israel, there is an extra measure of darkness. And when we can come to the realization of Hashem's true unity, that there's nothing else besides Him, even here, that brings Hashem the greatest pleasure. There is no greater joy for God than the light and joy caused by transforming darkness into light when the light has the superior quality acquired by coming out of the very darkness. So King Shlomo Shlomo HaMelech writes in Koheles, V'ra'isi ani sheyesh Yisrael l'chachma min ha-sichlos ki Yisrael ha-or ha-ba min And I see, he's speaking about himself, I, King Solomon, see that there is a greatness to wisdom, an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over darkness. The Zohar asks a question, really, does it take the wise King Solomon to point out that wisdom is better than stupidity and light is better than darkness? Don't need to be a genius for that. But the Zohar says like this, it's not that he's saying wisdom is better than stupidity. And light is better than darkness. He's saying there's a special advantage that comes from wisdom that follows stupidity, that comes from a situation of confusion. And light that comes from a situation of darkness. Like imagine you're reading something, you know this is good, and it's not getting into your mind. You're just confused. It's, it's not working out. And suddenly you get it. At that moment, when you get what was confusing you, you appreciate that wisdom better than if you just read it and got it right away. And the same thing, you're sitting in a blackout and suddenly the light goes on or a person is in a situation of darkness where they feel a spiritual darkness hanging over them. There's something that's clouding their life and that darkness is removed. The light that they feel the pleasure that they feel in the light after that blackout, either physical blackout or spiritual blackout, is much more pleasurable than plain light on its own. That's the way it is. There's a special advantage to light that comes from darkness. And so thinking about that, how we are sitting in a situation of darkness in the diaspora, outside of the land of Israel, us lowly creatures come to re- recognize this truth, that there's nothing else besides Hashem in the darkest, bleakest situation This brings Hashem incredible joy. 
Thus, when a Jew in the diaspora is pervaded with an awareness of God's unity, his joy is all the greater. It follows, too, that the more lowly one's spiritual position, the greater the divine joy when he acquires an awareness of God's unity. So this is really interesting, and this turns things on its head. Because you can say, hey, this idea, understanding God's unity, not for me. I'm not that spiritual. I don't have such a great soul. I, that's not the kind of background I came from. It's not the way I was raised. Let somebody who is better equipped for that come to that. Guess what? You know who's the best candidate to making Hashem happy? Specifically that person. The person who didn't have a good upbringing, who didn't have a good family, who has a wild animal soul, who has a crazy dark side, who's not naturally spiritual. And that person is able to tap into the truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem and allow it to speak to them and pervade their personality and shine through that. You know what? Hashem takes the greatest pleasure in that person. They are the greatest candidate for making Hashem happy. So to say, no, it's not for me. I'm not spiritual enough. You're not spiritual enough. Great. It's for you. You're the guy who's going to make Hashem happy. The lower you are, the better you are. Doesn't mean you have to get lower. It just means that wherever you are now, perfect, perfect place to make Hashem happy. We have seen thus far then that one's faith in Hashem's unity leads him to a twofold joy, joy in his closeness to Hashem and joy in the knowledge that his faith brings joy to Hashem. This is the meaning of the verse, Yismach Yisrael Ba'esav, let Israel rejoice in its maker. Note the expression maker, not creator or the like. Perush, this means, Shekal mi shehu zera Yisrael yesh Whoever is of the seed of Israel ought to rejoice. So the Navi Yeshaya says, Yismach Yisrael Ba'esav, let Israel rejoice with his maker. That's an interesting expression. His maker? And... The altar explains, this means that anybody who is of the seed of Israel should be happy. And it doesn't mean a great person. It doesn't mean a wise person, a person who already achieved high levels. It means just for the fact that we are Jewish, just for the fact that we've been granted a divine soul and the ability to allow Hashem's unity to resonate with us, that is a reason for incredible joy. We will be happy besimchas Hashem asher sas v'sameach bedirase batachtainim. We will rejoice in the joy of God, who is happy and joyous with His abode among the creatures of the lower spheres. Shehem bechinas asia gashmis gashmias mamish, who are on the level of the actual physical asia. When the verse says, "Let Israel rejoice with His Maker," it means that. Any person who has this ability to bring Hashem's unity in their mind and in their consciousness should rejoice because he can create an abode for Hashem. And for that, he should be happy, not just on his own, but happy with the Hashem's joy. Here, the way to understand this is, you say, Yismach Yisrael Ba'isav. So commentators explain, it means that the Jewish people as a whole should be happy with God who makes them, who makes them great, who raises them up, who exalts them. And that's true on a simple level. 
On a deeper level, it's speaking individually to each and every Jewish person. Each of us should rejoice, not just for the fact that Hashem has made the Jewish people great, but we are rejoicing with our maker. And the fact that we are able to make him happy allows us to be happy. Again, it's like hard to fathom this, that us creatures down here who are finite, mortal creatures can bring infinite joy to Hashem. He allows us to bring him joy. When we create an abode for him in our mind space, in our consciousness, when we nullify to that unity that there's really nothing else besides for Hashem, we create an abode for him within us. And when we create an abode for him within us, we fulfill the reason why he created the world. We answer his question of, where am I? And that makes him so happy. When Hashem is happy, then we in turn are happy. We are happy that we are able to make Hashem happy. And therefore, let Israel rejoice together with his maker. We are happy with Hashem. Hashem is happy, and so we are happy together with him. It's pretty wild. And you see the term of the Pasuk, it says, the verse, it says, Osav, with its maker. And this could have been a used. This could have been expressed in a different way. It could have been said, "Beyitzrei," in the one who formed him, "Bebayrei," in the one who created him. Isav is a curious term. Why the word Isav made him in this kind of way? And it's an allusion to this lowest world of Asiya. That a creature here in this lowest world can come to recognize this truth makes Hashem incredibly happy. The, tr- the word translated in its maker or in his maker shares a common root with Asiya, the lowest level of creation. With this abode in particular, ought Israel to rejoice, knowing that God's joy is especially great when the creations in Asiya, the very lowest world, become an abode for him. For this reason, the plural form Be'aisav is used. This is really, really strange, okay? Look at the verse. The verse says, Let Israel rejoice with his maker. But actually, the way to say his maker in the singular form is bit-i-sehu. The verse says, Let Israel rejoice with his makers in the plural form, referring to God. What does that mean? The literal meaning of the verse is, Let Israel rejoice in his makers. Why the use of a plural expression in reference to God? The altar explains that since God is spoken of here as a maker of the world of Asiya, the domain of Klipot, whose nature is arrogance and therefore separation and self-centeredness, the divine creative power is referred to in the plural, for it is fragmented, so to speak. There is a multitude of created beings, each separate from each other, each animated by the divine creative power, hence a plurality of makers, so to speak. So there's obviously just one God and he infuses each of us and each being in all the created worlds with divine energy. There's only one God. When each created being feels themselves to be separate and thus a separate expression of his divine energy, it appears as though it's fragmented. The divine energy, God forbid, is fragmented as if there's more than one maker, different expressions of the divine energy. But this fault becomes a cause for still greater divine joy when these separate beings at the level of Asiya unite in God's unity. The unification of creation is another achievement of man's faith in God's unity for this faith subdues the Sitra Ahra. 
which causes disunity. As stated above, it is the earlier darkness which enhances the light that replaces it. Thus, the greater the darkness, the more superior the subsequent light. In the Alter Rebbe's words, Shehu Ailam Haza Hagashmi, Hamali Klipais Vesitra Achra, Shenikra Rishus Harabim, Viture de Preda. This plural expression, makers, refers to our physical world that is filled with klipot and sitra achor, which is, are called a public domain, meaning a domain of multiplicity and mountains of separation, in that they are arrogant and separate from one another. So this world is God's domain. It's rishus hayachid. It's a one private domain. And yet these forces of evil make it look like it's a public domain, as if there are many forces going on when there's just one. And when we come to the realization that there's just one, there's nothing else besides Hashem. There is no other existence besides for Hashem. Not only there's no other God and no other authority, there's no other reality besides for Hashem. And when that happens, we take this public domain and we transform it into a private domain. God's joy in the fusion of this plurality is aroused when, through this faith in God's unity, they, the klipot, are transformed into light. And they become a private domain, a unified realm for God's unity. So let's wrap up what we said until now. And that is, here's an additional reason to be happy. An additional reason to be happy in that we can make Hashem happy. We can through our realization of his unity, that there's nothing else besides him, we create an abode for him. And that is the purpose of creation. And that brings Hashem tremendous joy. The Alter Rebbe writes in a Hasidic Mimer that what is a cause for joy and for merriment? It's newness. It's originality. How did the kings amuse themselves in the olden days? They would have lions fight with other animals because there was something new, things that they weren't used to. When something is new, when something is creative, when something is original, it makes you laugh. A joke is something the unexpected, what you didn't expect. You know the story of the king who was depressed and they're trying to bring him all the singers to make him happy. And one top singer after another is not making the king laugh. Suddenly, they bring a parrot. Now, parrots are not known to sing very on key. And the parrot starts singing and the king starts laughing. And all the, king, all the singers are insulted. I don't understand. They have a better voice than the parrot. Why didn't I make you happy? Well, because the fact that a human being can sing, okay. Human beings can sing. But a parrot can sing, that makes the king happy. And this is exactly it. The fact that us low creatures down here on this world, low only on the account of the darkness of the animal soul and the body, but of course we're infinitely great because of our divine soul. When we can tap into our divine essence, despite the darkness of our physicality, despite the darkness of this world and come to realize Hashem, that's what makes Hashem happy. The message has come through even in this lowest world. What we're doing is something original. We're taking darkness and transforming it to light. And that makes Hashem tremendously happy. And so our joy is threefold. First of all, we have a joy just in realizing the closeness of Hashem. When we realize that there's nothing else besides Him, we suddenly realize Hashem is intimately close. Second of all, when we come to the realization of His intimate closeness, that there's nothing else besides Him, we actually fulfill our purpose, the reason why we were born. To fulfill our purpose brings us tremendous joy. That's another reason to be happy. And thirdly, we are able to make Hashem happy. 
The fact that we recognize him brings him profound joy. It's from subduing darkness and transforming darkness to light. And this brings Hashem tremendous pleasure. And when we are able to bring him pleasure, then we are happy with him. We are happy that we are able to make him happy. So we finished chapter 33. And I'm going to do Mazel Tov. And I'm going to do a chapter 33 summary. So we remember everything we learned from beginning to end. And chapter 33 really is the joy chapter. It's the chapter of understanding that Hashem is all that there is. And it lets our heart sing. We literally become a different person from it. So the way to come to the true joy of the soul is by pondering and picturing in our mind Hashem's true unity. That Hashem fills every space and all of the worlds are absorbed within him. And the worlds have no value or importance before him. Since the existence of something small, while it is contained in something that is infinitely greater than itself, is utterly nullified, we understand there is no reality besides for Hashem. When we spend a lot of time thinking about it deeply until it literally resonates within us, when we picture it in our mind till it's something tangible, suddenly we experience the actual closeness of Hashem. And when we do that, we fulfill our own purpose and the reason why all the worlds were created. It's like having, much more than having, the king come and live with us. Remember we said that a low and common person, a king comes to live with him, will be so happy. We are even happier than that because this is Hashem who literally comes to live with us when we recognize and understand his unity. That's the reason why we say every day in our prayers, how fortunate are we? How good is our portion? How pleasant our lot? How beautiful our heritage? Just like a person is rejoices and glad when an immense fortune comes their way, through no toil of their own, we are so happy that by inheritance, we have this incredible ability to nullify to Hashem's true unity and let it resonate within us that there's nothing else besides Him. And that's what it means when it says, Chabakah came along and established all the mitzvot on one. As it says, the righteous man will live by his faith. That's the one mitzvah. When a person delves deeply into this idea of Hashem's true unity, until he literally gets life from this faith, and joy from this faith that there is no other existence besides for Hashem, then nothing will get in his way. Nothing will prevent him from serving Hashem. It will come easy to him to keep all the mitzvot since all the obstacles do not exist for him. And aside from the tremendous joy that there is because of our own closeness to Hashem, a person is always also tremendously happy that we have the incredible privilege to bring Hashem pleasure through utterly nullifying to the divine. And in this way, we subdue the Sishra Achra and transform the darkness into light. We got to finish the chapter, Baruch Hashem, and I'm opening up now for questions and discussion.